From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, rain continues in California. Ron Elving on the Weekend Politics. How can the Silicon Valley Bank collapse? And later, Christina Wong's solo show on how she enlisted hundreds of people to sew face masks during COVID-19. I have a Hello Kitty sewing machine. I got half a cut-up bed sheet. I got four yards of elastic. It might just give us a look at how to help others along with laughs. And later, a new novel written from the Vietnamese view of the war in Vietnam and the children of that war who were often left behind, Dust Child. First, our newscast at Saturday, March 11, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. It was another tough week on Wall Street. The Dow fell by about 4.5 percent. As NPR's David Gura reports, the week ended with a jobs report that beat Wall Street's expectations and the largest bank collapse since the global financial crisis. On Friday, regulators closed Silicon Valley Bank, which did business with venture capital firms and startups amid fears customers wouldn't be able to withdraw their money. The bank is now in receivership. And the U.S. economy added 311,000 jobs in February, according to the latest data from the Labor Department. That's nearly 100,000 more than forecasted, and we learned wages grew less than expected. Those numbers are part of what Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell calls the totality of the data he wants to see before the Fed makes its next interest rate decision at a meeting in less than two weeks. There will be new inflation data on Tuesday. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen met with prosecutors at the district attorney's office in New York on Friday. Cohen's lawyer, Lanny Davis, characterized the day. Mr. Cohen um, has uh, truth on his side, and we were very impressed with the professionalism of this group of prosecutors, and thank Mr. Bragg and the entire team. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's office has invited former President Trump to testify before a grand jury next week. Li Qiang has been sworn in as the new premier of China. Li is a close confidant of Chinese leader Xi Jinping, who nominated him and appointed him to the position at today's session of the National People's Congress. Li is best known for having enforced an aggressive zero-COVID lockdown on Shanghai, on Shanghai last spring. Intense winter storms are pushing through California just weeks after heavy snowfall and freezing temperatures wreaked havoc in parts of the state. From member station KQED, Juan Carlos Lara reports at least two deaths have been attributed to this latest round of storms. Officials say rain, snow and strong winds are expected to hit California through the weekend and into early next week. Caltrans Chief Deputy Director Michael Kiever said that combination of heavy rain and recent snow is increasing the risk of flooding, avalanches and road closures. And so we're asking the public uh, to please limit non-essential travel during the peak of the storm. But if you must travel, please stay aware of the situation. Governor Gavin Newsom has issued a state of emergency for many of the state's counties. Thousands of Californians are under evacuation orders, and tens of thousands are without power. For NPR News, I'm Juan Carlos Lara in San Francisco. Winter isn't done with the northern plains and upper Midwest. Heavy snow and gusty winds are in the forecast there. This is NPR News in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey says safety and reliability are the top priorities on the MBTA. She says she is very concerned about the missing and inconsistent track safety documents that prompted the system-wide slowdown of the MBTA Thursday night. I totally understand uh, the aggravation that commuters are feeling right now and have tremendous um, empathy for that. But, you know, we are working as quickly as we can and as hard as we can here in our first eight weeks to address some of these long-term systemic issues. Healy says hiring a new general manager for the T will happen in a matter of days, but will not say exactly when. Meanwhile, speed restrictions are still in place throughout the Green Line and on the Mattapan Trolley Line and in some areas of the blue, orange and red lines. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for accountability after the Silicon Valley Bank shutdown. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation seized the bank's assets yesterday. The Boston Globe says the bank is the 11th largest in Massachusetts with $5.5 billion in deposits as of June. Warren says the bank's executives must be held accountable for mismanagement. The Massachusetts Democrat says she's still working on figuring out what help may be available for local and national customers. If your driving routes include Logan Airport in Boston this weekend, then you might need to build in some extra time. The Sumner Tunnel is closed today and tomorrow and reopens Monday at 5 a.m. This allows crews to work on upgrading the aging tunnel. Periodic closures of the Sumner are expected through this winter. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is welcoming art to City Hall today. She's giving a speech at the space to mark Boston Public Schools Youth Art Month. The event kicks off a month of public art displays by K-12 Boston students at City Hall. It is 38 degrees in Boston, rain today, and late this afternoon, the rain could mix with a bit of snow. Temperatures today in the upper 30s. Clouds overnight with lows in the low 30s and a mostly sunny Sunday. Tomorrow's highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us today. The latest in a parade of storms has hit California, causing widespread flooding and two deaths. Heavy rain as much as 10 inches is compounding the effects of the several atmospheric rivers that hit the state earlier this year. Mudslides are forcing road closures. Some towns have been evacuated. Member station KCRW's Matt Gillum joins us now from Santa Barbara. Matt, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Give us some idea of what's happening there, please. Well, in Southern California, where I am, we're getting off pretty easy compared to some of the other storms that have come through this season. This one has been pretty mild, but that's what forecasters predicted. It's a different story as you move up the state. In Kern County, which is north of L.A., areas surrounding the Kern River have been evacuated due to flooding. I'll let National Weather Service meteorologist Antoinette Serrato explain what caused the river to jump its banks. Uh, This warm rain came into the area, and in places that had low-elevation snow, That low elevation snow isn't supported by a very stable, thick snowpack. And so what really happened is that that rain melted the snow and created rain on snow runoff. It's a similar story for other rivers as well. Many are running above flood stage. And in Santa Cruz County, flooding has triggered mudslides and washed out roads. 
And this is rain, not snow like some of the storms that hit earlier this year. That's right. Like earlier storms, this one is an atmospheric river, meaning it's like a conveyor belt for moisture, channeling water vapor from hundreds of miles away right into the Golden State. But those were cold storms, bringing snow, as you say. This time, we're getting hit with a so-called Pineapple Express. It's a warmer storm, and it's hitting many parts of northern and central California with more rain than snow, even at higher elevations. Matt, this is quite a contrast with California which is usually under drought warnings. Uh, are officials doing anything to try and capture all this water that's suddenly soaking the state? Uh, yes. Governor Gavin Newsom issued an executive order yesterday that cut some of the red tape surrounding water storage. Uh, along with that order from the governor, he's declared states of emergency tied to recent storms in a majority of California's counties. And just yesterday, President Biden authorized an emergency declaration for the state. The regional FEMA director, Robert Fenton, says... That allows FEMA to direct other federal agencies to provide life-saving and emergency assistance as needed to respond to not only the current events happening right now, but the other atmospheric rivers as they come. If there's any silver lining to all of this, the series of storms has worked wonders for our drought. At the start of the year, 35% of the state was experiencing the U.S. drought monitor's most severe conditions. Today, we are completely out of those categories, and a quarter of the state isn't experiencing any drought. Matt, what indications are about when the storm system might move out? Short term, this system should clear out by tomorrow, but another atmospheric river is on its way early next week, so not a lot of time to absorb all this water before we get soaked again. Reporter Matt Gillum of member station KCRW. Thanks very much for being with us, Matt. Happy to do it. And we're going out of storm clouds in New York over Trump Tower. A source familiar with the investigation says the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has invited Donald Trump to testify, testify before a grand jury next week. So we'll begin that weekend with Ron Elvin, NPR senior editor and correspondent. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Being invited to testify before, testify before a grand jury isn't quite like being invited to an Oscar-watching party. Um, <laughs> inviting the subject of an investigation to testify often precedes a criminal indictment. Help us uh, read what's going on here. The Manhattan DA has been investigating financial dealings of the Trump Organization over the years, as we know. But the focus in reports this week has been that payment that was called hush money that Trump made years ago to Stephanie Clifford, who is also known as the porn actress Stormy Daniels. That happened years in the past, as we say, but it's possible that new evidence or new witnesses may have emerged linking this to possibly other matters we don't know about yet. This request to appear is more than a courtesy. It's required by New York state law, and it gives the subject a chance to possibly ward off the indictment. At the same time, no one expects Trump to even try to do that. Uh, his attorneys will tell him, don't do it, don't testify. Mm -hmm. And the indictment would be expected to follow in a matter of weeks. And we should note that Trump is also facing possible indictment in Georgia for trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential vote there. And there's a federal prosecutor working the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case and the January 6th riot at the Capitol. So there could be charges there too. Of course, Donald Trump is a declared candidate for the Republican nomination already. Have we ever seen a criminal defendant run for the presidency? How, how exactly would that work? No one knows, because no one who was an indicted defendant in either a state or a federal case has ever been a serious contender for the White House, let alone a front runner, let alone a former president. So that would obviously be fodder for Trump's opponents in the primaries and beyond and the media. 
But he can enter primaries and even the fall election with charges pending and still win the primary, still win in November. And Trump supporters have swallowed quite a few bad stories about him in the past. It does not seem to matter to many of them. In fact, it's been suggested that an indictment or two would actually be motivating for his hardcore backers and maybe even a source of sympathy among other voters. Hmm. Meanwhile, the current president shows every sign of, of running for re-election but has not so announced. Uh, how is the president filling up his free time not running for president? Well, by running for president, by and large. Uh, he's traveling the country, even the world, uh, taking credit for infrastructure and energy conversion projects, associating himself with the strong job market. Uh, he's produced a document for the coming year, his budget for the coming fiscal year, and it is very much a political document. Congress will pay only scant attention to it, and Biden's trying to set up a contrast between his kind of spending cuts and tax increases and the kind that Republicans in Congress would prefer. And in case there were any doubt about that, the House Freedom Caucus had a news conference yesterday at which they laid out their essentially their ultimatum for what it would take to get them to vote to raise the debt ceiling later on this year. Uh, they've got some deep, deep cuts in federal programs that they would like to see, where Biden obviously is uh, focused elsewhere and would like to raise taxes on the wealthy. One other thing Joe Biden's been doing to run for president is he's been moving to the middle on energy issues and also on crime. And help us understand the significance of something that's going on, because there, there are, I don't want to say suddenly, but there are a number of health concerns uh, in the U.S. Senate, where, of course, the margin between the two parties is, uh, is very slender. Pennsylvania's John Fetterman. Uh, Mr. Fetterman, we've talked about uh, this before, of course, recovering from a stroke and now as current treatment for depression. And this week, uh, it was disclosed that the minority leader, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, is being treated for a concussion. Yes, now we should, we should note first that the staffs for both those senators are talking about them recovering and returning very soon to the Senate. Uh, McConnell was up and around yesterday telling some jokes. Uh, but we should mention too that Dianne Feinstein has been hospitalized of late uh, for shingles in, in her particular case. This is a Senate with no real majority, Scott. There are three independents who vote along with the Democrats. That makes them the majority. Mm -hmm. Any change in the lineup has enormous potential to scramble politics on Capitol Hill. And of course, Mitch McConnell has been leader of the Republicans in the Senate longer than anyone else. And if we were to not have Mitch McConnell, there would probably be a scramble to find a new Republican leader in the Senate as well. Yeah. NPR's Ron Elving. Ron, thanks so much for being with us and uh, talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you, Scott. WWE World Wrestling Entertainment wants to legalize betting on its wrestling matches, which, spoiler alert, are as carefully scripted and choreographed as a performance of Swan Lake. CNBC reports that WWE is working with an accounting firm to assure state gambling commissions that the winners of their matches on Raw, SmackDown, and WrestleMania, featuring the likes of Rhea Ripley, Dominic Mysterio, Sami Zayn, and Sola Sequoia, can be concealed until the match is actually <clears throat> performed. Sports leagues used to shun gambling. Now they see it as, I'll use some corporate language here, a new source of revenue enhancement. The WWE calls itself an entertainment company, not a sports league. This report made me wonder if other entertainment enterprises might now ponder bringing legalized betting into their operations for enhanced revenue. 
Shakespeare and the Park Company could offer odds this summer on who'll slip the last blade into Julius Caesar. I got Cassius at two to one. Ah, I'll take Brutus at three to one. Yes, the play's been around since 1599, but some people will bet on anything. Well, audiences watching Star Wars for the first time be encouraged to bet on Skywalker versus Vader. School districts might entice middle schoolers to read classics with new interest if the students can wager a little of their lunch money on the different fates of the sisters and little women, or whether Beowulf will take down Grendel. Novelists might fire their imaginations with thoughts of new revenue. Harlan Coben, the great crime writer, seemed enthusiastic when he told us, Does this mean I can list all the suspects on the title page and Vegas makes up the betting odds? Would the favorite be the most obvious suspect or the least? Would we have an over-under on how many murders in the book? I doubt Hemingway or Joan Didion weighed such considerations when writing their novels, but I'll bet, interesting choice of words, they would have made the best of them. And imagine new audiences who finally get tickets to Hamilton, and when the lights come up on that final scene at dawn on a New Jersey plane, you see two statesmen holding pistols and might hear voices in the seats call out, Five bucks on Hamilton! And, ah, I got a ten spot on Aaron Burr. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818, and coming up in about 10 minutes or so, you'll hear about the effort to modernize Columbia's emerald mining industry. It's 38 degrees in Boston, some rain, and late this afternoon could mix with some snow. Temperatures in the upper 30s. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Into the Woods. Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Tony Award-winning musical is coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. And now a second week of performances has just been added. Into the Woods plays at Emerson Colonial Theater for two weeks only, beginning March 21st. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. Federal regulators have seized the assets of Silicon Valley Bank after it became the largest financial institution to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. In the U.S. West, where a 10th winter atmospheric river event has arrived, heavy rain is beginning to melt lower parts of a huge snowpack in California's mountains. Other parts of the state are struggling with severe flooding. Heavy snow and gusty winds are in the forecast for the northern plains and upper Midwest. The National Weather Service says parts of the southern plains are due for scattered severe thunderstorms and heavy rain. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. We are following news of a bank failure, the biggest since the global financial crisis 15 years ago. Silicon Valley Bank catered to some of the most powerful tech investors in the world, and yesterday it collapsed. NPR's David Gura joins us now. David, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to be here, Scott. Not one of the best-known names in banking, right? No, this this wasn't as widely known as Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan Chase, and it certainly wasn't as big as those firms. But in the world of tech, Silicon Valley Bank punched above its weight for 40 years doing business with venture capital firms and the companies in their portfolios. So this was a very specialized bank with a very narrow expertise, elite clients, and it was a vital part of the tech ecosystem, which has been under a lot of pressure lately as the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates to fight high inflation. We've seen less investment, Scott, and some of the biggest names in tech have laid off tens of thousands of workers. What seems to have led to the collapse? I'll stick with interest rates because that's the backdrop to all of this. When they're low, it is cheap to borrow money, and the availability of that fueled unbridled growth in the tech sector. Plus, during the pandemic, people were turning to Facebook and to Netflix to pass the time. That boosted profits at tech companies, which also helped Silicon Valley Bank. Well, now the situation has changed. Interest rates are much higher than they were. They're continuing to go up, and that means borrowing money is more expensive, and venture capitalists, the investors that make big bets on tech startups, they're keeping their powder dry. The demand for tech products has declined, which means that tech companies are getting more conservative with their money. Recently, Silicon Valley Bank saw an uptick in withdrawals, which made executives at that bank worried. This week, its CEO said it had sold off a significant part of its bond portfolio to be able to handle these withdrawal requests, and it took a massive hit doing that, a nearly $2 billion loss. That news really spooked its customers. Even more of them pulled money out of the bank, and we got what's really a classic bank run. Customers lining up, fearful they're not going to be able to get their money back. That hammered Silicon Valley's stock price, Scott, and on Thursday it fell by 60%. And what seems to have prompted regulators to step in? A growing fear of what could happen, that this could spread across the sector. There was this worry that other banks could see a run on their deposits, and uh, regulators were worried about the risk of contagion. Thursday was a brutal day for banks. Investors selling off shares of some of Silicon Valley Bank's midsize and regional competitors, and even the big banks saw their stock prices sink, although not as dramatically. Now, there is no indication other banks are in trouble. Bank analysts I talked to described what's been happening as panic selling, including Jared Shaw at Wells Fargo. It's really just you know a fear that has gripped the market and uh, is, is sort of self-perpetuating at this point. And what seems to be next, David? Well, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is effectively in control now. That's the FDIC, and it's created a new entity to manage the bank's assets. And the FDIC said that by Monday, Silicon Valley Bank clients who had insured deposits will be able to get their money back. But keep in mind, the FDIC typically only insures up to $250,000, and customers with deposits that exceed that amount, that's most of Silicon Valley Bank's clients, will face a lot more uncertainty. It does seem, Scott, like regulators were able to forestall the contagion they were worried about. But I go back to that backdrop I mentioned. Interest rates have gone up. 
Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said to Congress this week they're likely to go up even more than the Fed first expected. So the challenge here is not over for these banks that are adjusting to a new reality and also for their corporate clients, especially in tech. And Pierre David Gura, thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. On March 13th, 2020, then-President Donald Trump declared the coronavirus pandemic a national emergency. Three years later, as the end of that national emergency approaches, the CDC has released a guidance saying, quote, the virus that causes COVID-19 can have lasting effects on nearly every organ and organ system of the body weeks, months, and potentially years after the infection. Have we even begun to dent the surface of what we know about so-called long COVID and its effects? Dr. Leora Horwitz is a physician at NYU Langone Health. She works with patients who still have COVID symptoms months, sometimes even years after their initial infections. Dr. Horwitz, thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Some of the language that the CDC used is, uh, let me put it this way, unforgettable. They say that that complications uh, could include cardiovascular, pulmonary, neurological, renal, endocrine, hematological, and gastrointestinal complications, as well as death. Help us understand this in the most practical terms. Well, that's absolutely true, and it's what makes um, the study and the treatment of long COVID so difficult. Uh, What we are seeing is that the virus can affect any part of the body. We see that in the acute infection when people first have COVID, but we see it especially in in this long COVID. So people are describing all kinds of symptoms, whether they are general like fatigue or exhaustion to more specific with certain organs. People are having confusion or difficulty concentrating. People are having inflammation of the heart. People are having trouble breathing. People are having dizziness when they stand. And it's possible that all of that is related to the same sort of underlying problem, or it's possible that there are different kinds of causes that are leading to different kinds of symptoms in different people. We just don't know enough yet. How many patients have you seen who you would put into these categories? Oh, well, I see plenty as they come through the hospital or or elsewhere. I have the most experience because I'm helping to lead the National Institute of Health's study of long COVID across the country. We don't know an exact number yet, in part because we don't have an exact definition yet, but it's clearly a, a meaningful proportion of people who originally get COVID go on to still have symptoms months later. Have we gotten better at treating it? We don't know very much yet about treating it. Uh, Right now, people are mostly treating the symptoms, trying to help people who have dizziness to not have dizziness, trying to help people who have trouble breathing with rehabilitation. We are starting to see a lot of trials, however, uh, beginning with specific treatments for the virus itself or for the consequences. And I have confidence that we will get much better at treatment uh, in the next couple of years as we learn more about the underlying cause. As I certainly don't have to tell you, COVID restrictions are, and precautions are dropping all over the country. Uh, you know, and there, there have been profound economic, social, and, and educational losses from prolonged COVID lockdowns. Now, the White House has announced an end to the national and public health emergencies to come in May. What's your reaction? Well, I think it is important that we learn how to live with a virus that's never going to go away. 
But I think what that means is trying to minimize our risk. That means keeping up to date with vaccinations as they come out. I think that uh, in terms of the long COVID, people should extend grace. I think in many places, even in many doctor's offices, people don't recognize yet that this is a real disease. And because we don't have a blood test or an official diagnosis yet, it's easy sometimes for people to feel that uh, it's all in their head or it, they're just being difficult. And that's just not the case. Did I hear you say there are doctors that don't recognize long COVID? Yeah, I think there are still some. And we have seen this for a long time with post-viral conditions of other kinds too. So it takes a while to get knowledge into the medical community, especially as we are, all of us are learning still. But the basic concept that there is a post-viral condition, long COVID, that can happen after SARS-CoV-2 infection is not in dispute. Dr. Leora Horwitz is a physician at NYU Langone Health in New York City. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Emeralds from Colombia are widely considered to be the finest in the world, like the compositions of B.J. Lederman, who writes her theme music. But for decades, Colombia's emerald business has been plagued by violence and environmental havoc. John Notice now reports on a former U.S. envoy who's trying to change that. Hey, how are you? Chuck Burgess, pleased to meet you. Charles Burgess greets guests at the emerald mine he operates near the town of Muso in central Colombia. Burgess, who is 67, spent decades as a U.S. diplomat in Latin America and admits that he got into the business on a whim. I don't have a mining background, I don't have a geology background, never in my wildest you know, imagination thought I'd be working in any sort of uh, business like this. But it's been fascinating. Burgess is president of the Musso companies that produce 85% of Colombia's emeralds. The gemstones are extracted from this maze of underground tunnels that a guide is leading me through. The mine is inside this mountain, okay? We are to descend uh, about uh, 300 meters. We'll go down 300 meters? Yeah. The entrance to the mine is as big as a road tunnel. That allows heavy machinery inside to pull out tons of rocks and debris instead of having miners push it out in hand carts. Monitors measure air quality. There are even phones and internet links to call for help in case of emergency. I've never been in a, a mine before that has Wi-Fi way down underground. Colombia's emerald industry used to be far more dangerous, with frequent accidents inside the mines and gun battles on the outside. The business was controlled by family clans, some of which had ties to cocaine traffickers and paramilitary groups. Their disputes for control over Colombia's emerald mines set off a so-called Green War in the late 1980s that killed 3,500 people. It was a scary time because these people would kill whoever they wanted, says Ramiro Melo, a 58-year-old miner from Muso. 
The violence scared away investors while several mine owners were extradited to the U.S. on drug charges. Burgess, who had worked in the political section of the U.S. Embassy in Colombia, was asked if he could help drum up foreign financing. Huge sums were needed to modernize the industry as emeralds were getting harder to find and open pit mines were contaminating rivers and causing deforestation. And so I got in touch with some of the people in, that I knew back in the States and put them in contact with the Emerald people here, and there we go. In 2012, a group of American investors bought Columbia's largest mine and put Burgess in charge, though there was some resistance. What did uh, all these other big families and powers in the Emerald industry think about this? Uh, I like it, but it's not a problem. The, the idea was to fundamentally change the industry. And that's what's been happening. The open pits are long gone, replaced by tunnels. Miners here never used to receive paychecks. When they dug up emeralds, their bosses would give them a tiny sliver of the profits. It was a totally informal system, and from the very first day that we took over, all that changed. The guys are paid through the banking system. They got their Social Security, their benefits. We were also the pioneers in bringing women into the workforce. Indeed, women used to be considered bad luck and were largely kept out of the mines. Now, says Maria Fernanda Cardona, one of several female geologists employed here, there are lots of jobs for women, and their work is paying off. Deep underground, these miners use pickaxes to open veins of white calcite rock that is streaked with green, the telltale sign of emeralds. So we've spotted our first emeralds after about an hour into our mine tour. Little green rocks sticking out of the side of the cave. It turns out that this area was first mined by indigenous groups before the Spanish conquest. But when our tour of the mine is over, Burgess points out that it's still full of emeralds. The potential here is virtually unlimited. Like you said, how could you be running a mine for 500 years and you're still producing every day? And it's just how it is. It's just the geology. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Muso, Colombia. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The Christian season of Lent is a time of reflection and repentance, and now yoga. As Dina Pritchett reports, more and more churches are offering yoga as a Lenten practice. In a lot of ways, the yoga class at Resurrection Lutheran Church outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, feels like any other yoga class. The mats, the music, the settling into your body. Shift your weight to your right foot and move into tree pose when you're ready. But this is yoga devotion, a Christian yoga practice, led here by Karen Mahmood. Lent moves its way towards Good Friday, which of course is where Jesus is on the tree. So when you're ready, shift your weight to the left 
A half dozen women are breathing deeply, envisioning themselves on a calm beach, but also envisioning that Jesus comes up and talks with them. We'll stay in this pose for another two minutes. You realizing that this conversation is what prayer is. Using a practice outlined in Hindu scripture to reflect on the life of Jesus may seem a little strange, but it's become popular in churches across the country. We need to take care of our bodies to be not only temples for God, but to be instruments of God's peace in the world. Megan Davis Brass is a pastor in Newton, Iowa, and serves on the board of the group Christians Practicing Yoga. I'm Presbyterian, so we still don't move much in worship. (laughs) But that's my chance in, in yoga to pray with my body. The word yoga comes from the Sanskrit for union, union between body and spirit, or human and the divine. You have yoga showing up in Jainism and Buddhism. Srina Gandhi teaches religion at Michigan State University. In this country, starting in like the 1970s, you had Jewish yoga. Uh, Right around the time of Vatican II, you had nuns practicing yoga. In some ways, this is how religious practice always works. It borrows, it exchanges, it grows. But Gandhi says there's an important difference between exchange and appropriation. You have to think about it in terms of who has power and who doesn't. Gandhi says adopting and adapting, the practice of yoga can bring awareness, not just bodily and spiritually, but also politically. If you can be okay with, you know, stretching your hamstring and feeling uncomfortable, why can't you be okay with stretching your mind a little and thinking about your power and privilege? While Gandhi sees the need for Christian yoga to consider the bigger picture, she also sees it as part of that picture. For thousands of years, yoga has used breath and physical movements to connect those who practice to something larger. And at Resurrection Lutheran Church in Minnesota, that's what's happening. It grounds me for the week. I attend church on Sunday, and I can hardly wait for Tuesday evening. Sue Sorensen has been coming to yoga devotion for five years. You're taking care of your body, and you're taking care of your faith and your spiritual life. And according to Pastor Megan Davis-Brass, that's especially important during these 40 days leading up to Easter. Lent is a time when we prepare ourselves for the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. Christ, who was born into a body, lived in a body, and then was resurrected into a body. The season of Lent starts with ashes and a meditation on mortality, and ends with resurrection. Christian yoga helps those who practice embrace their faith with their whole bodies, acknowledging their strength and their frailty and their holiness, and prepare for new life. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchep. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. You would be wise to assume that getting places on the MBTA might take some extra time today. The T Interim General Manager Jeff Gonneville says speed restrictions on the entire Green Line and on the Mattapan Trolley Line will continue this weekend until final track inspections are completed. Slowdowns also are in place in some stretches of the blue, orange, and red lines. On Thursday evening, Gonneville ordered trains on all the MBTA subway lines to reduce speeds after he learned that the T lacked documentation to prove to state regulators that necessary work had been completed. 
A new temporary space for musicians displaced by the closure of the Sound Museum in Brighton is now open in Dorchester with 88 rehearsal studios. The temporary space will be allowed for two years before another permanent space opens in Brighton. The Sound Museum was sold for lab space, displacing hundreds of musicians in January. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall, babson.edu slash mba. And Xfinity Internet announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. I'm Nagin Farsad filling in for Peter Sagal. Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala which she would choose, Taylor Swift tickets or Beyonce tickets. I would want both tickets. I have a Nobel Peace Prize and I get <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, incredible answer. We'll hear your demands on this week's news quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Mississippi River, where passengers can experience Southern culture and visit Civil War battlefields. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com NPR. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. During the pandemic, when many were binge-watching Netflix and doom-scrolling Twitter, Christina Wong was running a sweatshop out of her apartment in Koreatown, Los Angeles. Ensuring a machine-like output from our bodies, threatening to snip the fingers off any slackers. Not a real sweatshop, a satirical solo show named Sweatshop Overlord, about her real-life experience mobilizing hundreds of volunteers across the country to assemble masks to stop the spread of COVID. Now Christina Wong is winning awards and taking on more roles. NPR's Chloe Viltman has this profile. In Sweatshop Overlord, Christina Wong presents herself as an out-of-work performance artist facing the onslaught of COVID-19 with little more than a bias towards action and some basic sewing skills. I have a Hello Kitty sewing machine. I got half a cut-up bedsheet. I got four yards of elastic. But there's another side to her seemingly humble theatrical persona. Wong is also the swaggering, self-appointed kingpin of the anti-sewing squad, an ad hoc network of volunteer mask makers she galvanised through Facebook during the pandemic. This is my ancestral destiny. She was always a leader in her school. That's Gwen Wong, the artist's mother. She says taking charge is in her 44-year-old daughter's DNA. She could easily be a CEO or a secretary 
director of some organization. Christina Wong makes a habit of taking on leadership roles, at the grassroots level, that is. She then turns these real-life experiences into hilarious performance pieces, touching on serious social justice themes. There's Christina Wong for Public Office, the satire the performer created about her adventures in local politics. Last April, with 71 votes, if you do not count the vote that I cast for myself, I became the real-life elected official of Subdistrict 5, Wilshire Centre Koreatown Neighbourhood Council. There's also a stage production in the works about her role as an unusual type of tastemaker. Here's a video on social media of her working with the World Harvest Food Bank in LA. It is I, Christina Wong, Pulitzer Prize finalist in drama, and I am also a food bank influencer. And, and although she isn't planning on making theatre out of it for now, Wong says in an interview with NPR, she even got suckered recently into serving as treasurer on her building's HOA. I have no idea what I'm doing. As self-deprecating as she is energetic, Wong likes to take charge because she wants to get things done. Take a decision in March 2020 to launch the anti-sewing squad. I really thought we were all going to die, so I was like, I could try to look for income right now, but it feels like the more important thing is to keep everyone alive. Wong says her Chinese immigrant grandparents ran a laundry business in San Francisco and there was always a lot of sewing happening around her. But as she demonstrates her mask-making skills at the Hello Kitty sewing machine in her homey Koreatown apartment... And we'd cut these shapes. The performer admits she doesn't rate her own abilities with a needle and thread too highly. I am very sloppy. <laughs> I use this sewing machine like a stapler. I like yank things through. She says when demand for masks boomed, it made more sense for her to focus on auntie sewing squad overlording, as she calls it, doing things like coordinating fabric donations and talking to the press. Writer Rebecca Solnit, a.k.a. the Auntie Sewing Squad's Shakedown Auntie, was one of Wong's underlings. Shakedown because I would go on Facebook and make money come in and stuff. Solnit says one of Wong's greatest skills as a leader was creating a support network for the aunties that made them feel valued. They did nice things for each other, like delivering homemade cookies and teaching online yoga classes. And there were other sewing projects but this one built a culture and a community for the people doing the sewing. Sometimes Wong takes on leadership roles that end up making great satirical theatre, but don't quite work out the way she hoped they would in real life. This is Nazi-level indoctrination. This and clip this from the conspiracy theory website Infowars is part of a trolling campaign against Wong, which, in a bizarre turn of events, led to her decision to run for neighbourhood council and eventually the 2020 show Christina Wong for public office. I wasn't trying to be a right-wing laughingstock meme. Wong says Infowars attacked her because they didn't like what the performer was teaching kids on her children's web TV series, Radical Cram School. Welcome to Radical Cram School. We're going to learn about social justice, revolution... And Wong says the ensuing abuse she received on social media was so stressful. One night she took cover at her friend Angie Brown's place. Brown is an activist and TV producer and Wong's neighbour in Koreatown. And I'm a huge weed consumer. And so I immediately <laughs> offered her an edible. And I had her smoke some. And in about an hour, she was so high. And we were talking a lot. And I convinced her to run for neighbourhood council with me. Wong says she had equally high expectations for her role on the lowest rung of local politics. I was like, we're going to decriminalise sex work. We're going to 
make it affordable housing for everybody. We're going to protect all renters. Then reality set in. It's very hard to do big things from an unpaid office. Even if Wong doesn't have a dazzling political career ahead of her, she is hitting her stride as an artist. Sweatshop Overlord was one of two finalists for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2022. And last month, Wong received one of the country's biggest arts accolades. The Doris Duke Award is worth $550,000. So much of my identity has been forged in a certain scrappiness, so I'm just like, what do I do now that I have a safety net? Wong's term on the Neighbourhood Council is coming to a close. She says she has no plans to run again for this or any other political office anytime soon. Oh, like, oh my God, let me just make theatre. I prefer anarchy. Christina Wong says creating art feels immediate. Creating legislation, though important, takes way too long. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Maybe you heard, Oscar Sunday night, stars will be scrutinized for their clothes. I'm, <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> and it's a question of climate or labor. The cheapest fashion, you know, getting a dress with embroidery on for say $13 is subsidized by somebody at the other end of the chain. I'm sorry. You can hear the whole conversation without coughing Sunday with Ayesha, weekend edition live tomorrow morning on this public radio station on your phone or at npr.org. Born Vietnam has been at the center of many outstanding and wrenching American books and films, but the Vietnamese who suffered most in that war are often portrayed mostly as bystanders, victims, or aggressors. Win Phuong Quay Mai, an award-winning Vietnamese writer and journalist, has written a novel that tells the stories of people of mixed race born out of wartime relationships between U.S. servicemen and Vietnamese women who were often left to languish in orphanages, shunned in their communities, left behind and forgotten by their biological fathers. Her novel, Dust Child, and Win Phuong Quay Mai, joins us now from Seattle, where she's on book tour. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. You heard a lot of personal stories from people that made you want to write this novel, I gather. Yes, definitely. Uh, for quite a few years, I've been helping Amerasians to unite with their parents. So this novel actually started in 2015 when... I was interviewing a group of American uh, veterans who were returning to Vietnam to look for the women and the children they once abandoned. So I asked one of them if they could write a letter to you know, one of their former girlfriends and tell her why he had abandoned her when she was pregnant and why he was going back to look for her. And um, he wrote a very moving story, and I published it together with the stories of these uh, American veterans on a national Vietnamese newspaper. And then three weeks later, I heard from one of the women in the article that the veteran was looking for. They united after more than 46 years. And, you know, I mean, there were so many amazing stories that I witnessed and very heartbreaking as well. I want you to read a section from your novel that introduces us to one of your characters, uh, Fong, who is Amerasian, waiting at the U.S. consulate in Ho Chi Minh City, 2016, with his visa application. Okay. Around him, 
many Vietnamese were waiting in chairs or in lines for their turn to speak with one of the visa officers who sat at counters behind glass windows. Some Vietnamese cast curious glances toward Phong and he felt the heat of their eyes. Heartbreak, he imagined them whispering. Throughout his life, he had been called the dust of life, bastard, black American imperialist, child of the enemy. These labels had been flung at him when he was younger with such ferocity that they had burrowed deep within him, refusing to let go. When he was a child living in the Lam Dong New Economic Zone with Sister Nhã, he once filled a large bucket with water and soap, clamped inside and rubbed his skin with a sponge gout to scrub the black of it. He was bleeding by the time Sister Nhã found him. He wondered why he had to be born an Amerasian. You saw such youngsters growing up in Vietnam in the 1980s? Yes, as a person who moved from North Vietnam to South Vietnam, I felt like a refugee. You know, people from the North, like my family, were resented and I was bullied. So I felt such compassion towards Amerasian children who were also bullied around me, but I didn't dare to, to speak up. For years, I was wondering what happened to them. So when I researched about this novel, I was shocked to see the extent of the discrimination that they face. And I was very much inspired to see their courage and, you know, their struggles over time. And in this book, you know, I want to present from a Black Amerasian, not as a victim. He's a loving father, a wonderful calendar, and a musician. I got to tell you what some of the toughest parts of the novel were for me, which is to read about how some U.S. servicemen treated Vietnamese women they met in bars. Yeah, I mean, it was shocking to me when I researched for this novel to find out how many Vietnamese women had to work, you know, uh, to serve American servicemen. There were hundreds of thousands of them, and they suffered a lot of uh, physical abuse because their clients were very traumatized by the war and also because of the circumstances. So they were looked out upon, you know, considered as sexual objects. And you have seen the representation of these women in many Hollywood movies, you know. They appeared as very... Um, I don't know, stupid, sexual. So I wanted to write about them in their full human capacity and the extent of the discrimination that they had to face and how they had to overcome so many things to survive. Yeah. I'll note you tell the story of, uh, of Dan, who'd been a U.S. pilot. Um, Kim, Vietnamese woman he knows from the countryside, they meet at a place called the Hollywood Bar, which isn't really just a bar. Dan never quite tells Kim that he's engaged to a woman named Linda, but he brings Linda back as his wife. What does he want to find in Vietnam when he comes back? So Dan wanted to search for healing, uh, for ways to overcome his trauma, to improve his relationship with Linda. But when he returned to Vietnam, he realized the root of his trauma is caused by the relationship that he had with Chang, whose bar name is uh, Kim. 
and he had abandoned her when she was pregnant. So then he was determined to find Zhang and their child. So, you know, this book is a book of searches. Dan has to search for healing, for forgiveness. Fong has to search for his parents. And Zhang and her sister have to survive the war and find healing for their family members. U.S. readers will find the spellings of Vietnamese names in your novel different from what some of us grew up reading. What we might call Saigon is rendered as two words, Saigon. Why was it important to you to do that? When I wrote my first novel, The Mountain Sing, I made a difficult decision. I told my publisher, I would rather keep my name and the names of the characters and the Vietnamese words in my novel in the authentic Vietnamese way to show respect for my culture rather than to sell more books. The fact is, throughout our long history, we have been colonized occupied by so many empires and we have suffered so much loss to our language. Whenever the Vietnamese language is published as part of the English text, we are expected to take away the diacritics of our names to make it easy to the Western readers. And here I am to say that if we remove the diacritics, we misspell the Vietnamese words. For example, my name Quê, if it's written in the right way with, with a hat and with a sack, it says Quê, that means cinnamon. But if you spell it like the normal English way, you remove the diacritics, it becomes Quê, and it means a stick. Diacritics are really important to our language you know, by reading my novels, the readers are embracing the Vietnamese culture, Vietnamese language, so I thank you for that. Win Phan Quê Mai, her novel, Dust Child. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or staplesconnect.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 38 degrees in Boston, some rain, and late this afternoon the rain could mix with a bit of snow. Temperatures today in the upper 30s. Clouds tonight, lows in the low 30s. Sunshine tomorrow, highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. 
This year, an Oscar first. Some 20% of acting nominations at the Academy Awards went to Asian performers. The universe is so much bigger than you realize. We'll talk about this watershed year for Asian actors and a look at the history-making nominees ahead of the Oscars. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the jobs report is strong again. Why are prices so high? Why so many layoffs? And later, China's new premier. A soldier's funeral in Ukraine. Michaela Schifrin skis to a new record. And tomorrow night, the Oscars. The sound is not from the hand of Will Smith. It's from the performance of stunt artists in a film. Why don't those who take spills and slaps for big stars have their own award category? And new music from Kali Uchis. First, we have our newscast at Saturday, March 11, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A California lender mostly associated with Silicon Valley venture capitalists and startups today is in the control of federal regulators. The FDIC took over Silicon Valley Bank on Friday after a run on the bank earlier in the week saw depositors taking out $42 billion in just 24 hours. Chris Katowski is managing director of Oppenheimer & Company. This is very swift action. It has pluses and minuses to it. You know, one is that it it cures that moral hazard argument, right? We're going to, you know, the the chips are going to fall where they may. You know, on on the other hand, unfortunately, it's also sending the subtle message, and you can see that in the stock market today. It's sending the subtle message that, um, that you should take your money out of smaller banks and put them into bigger banks. Wall Street closed out its worst week since last September. The S&P and Dow each losing about 4.5% for the week. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is moving closer to a decision on a 2024 presidential bid. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters has more on his stop in Iowa. Ron DeSantis spoke to large crowds in both Davenport and Des Moines. He gave campaign-style speeches where he talked about his COVID policies in Florida and legislation he signed banning classroom instruction about sexual orientation or gender identity. He says the purpose of schools is to educate children, not indoctrinate them and parents need to be in control. They have a right to know what's being taught in the schools and know the curriculum that's being used. And if there's things like pornography, the parents have a right to say it should be removed from the schools. DeSantis did not bring up former President Donald Trump, who will be in the state on Monday for the first time since announcing a third run for the White House. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. 
A Texas man has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against three friends of his ex-wife for allegedly helping her obtain abortion pills. Texas Public Radio's Carolina Cuellar reports. Marcus Silva is suing the women under Texas's wrongful death statute and murder statute. The petition contains a text message exchange between the defendants and the man's ex-wife, which allegedly shows that two of the defendants set resources on how to obtain abortion medication and that the third woman delivered the pills. The plaintiff is represented by Jonathan Mitchell, a former Texas Solicitor General and the architect of the state law banning abortion after six weeks, which went into effect last year. This is the first case of its kind since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. I'm Carolina Cuellar in McAllen. American alpine skiing star Michaela Schifrin set a world record today, notching a never-before-scored 87th career win. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts residents in the startup community are worried after regulators shut down Silicon Valley Bank yesterday. SVB blamed rising interest rates for its massive loss in value this week. According to data from the research company Crunchbase, the bank has invested money in 50 Massachusetts companies since 2000. Regulators say by Monday, companies will have access to insured funds, generally up to $250,000. Speed restrictions are in place on the MBTA's Green Line and on the Mattapan Trolley, and also on parts of the Red, Orange, and Blue Lines until final track inspections are completed. On Thursday, trains on all the T-subway lines reduced speeds after managers could not prove to state regulators that necessary train work had been completed. State C. Thompson is with the Cambridge-based advocacy group Livable Streets Alliance, and she says she's encouraged the MBTA acted quickly and that the Department of Public Utilities appears to be holding the T accountable. I'm sort of curious, was DPU doing this kind of work and doing these checks six months ago, a year ago, two years ago? This is actually exactly what we want to see the DPU doing. These are the kinds of checks and balances that make the system safer. A WBUR investigation earlier this year found the department routinely failed to perform timely reviews of safety incidents on the T. The DPU says it's been working to hire enough qualified transportation safety experts. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will be joining the Boston Gay Men's Chorus on stage this weekend. She will read the children's book, A Peacock Among Pigeons, a book about standing out when you don't fit in. The group will then premiere a choral adaptation of the book. The Boston Gay Men's Chorus thanked Wu for her LGBTQ plus advocacy. The show will be performed today and tomorrow at New England Conservatory's Jordan Hall. It's 38 degrees in Boston, some rain around, and late this afternoon, the rain could mix with a bit of snow. Temperatures today in the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. The latest jobs report is out. I'm happy to report that our economy has created over 300,000 new jobs last month. And that's on top of a half a million jobs we added the month before. President Biden at the White House yesterday, as he said, 
He's happy. But our companies and their investors and the Federal Reserve. Barry Ritholtz is a columnist and chairman of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What's your assessment of the latest report from everybody's favorite publisher, the Bureau of Labor Statistics? It seems to be the report that we most overreact to. We created 311,000 jobs out of an economy with over 155 million. What matters is the trend, and the trend has been we're creating a decent number of jobs at a reasonable wage with very modest unemployment. The bigger concern is that the Fed has been overreacting uh, to inflation numbers, which really seem to have peaked last year. And how much damage are they going to do to the economy before this is all said and done? Damage to the economy by raising interest rates? Well, keep in mind, the Fed has a dual mandate, price stability, which is preventing or moderating inflation, and full employment. And what seemed to have happened is that the Fed sort of fell asleep at the switch when inflation started to tick up towards the end of 2020 and into 21. Today, it seems that they're just raising rates so aggressively that it's causing all sorts of fallout and damage. The most recent seems to be what's happening uh, at Silicon Valley Bank, which has been around forever and somehow ran into trouble buying U.S. treasuries. It's sort of unheard of that a bank owning treasuries uh, is somehow going to get hurt. Explain to us how to understand month after month of adding jobs and then layoffs at Google's Alphabet, Goldman Sachs, 3M, and so many other places. What happened over the past couple of years is an overhiring by a, a number of big technology companies what did Amazon announce? They doubled in size over the past three years from 800,000 workers to a million and a half workers. So really, they're just undoing the last leg of, of that hiring spasm we've seen during the past few years. When Chairman Powell said this week that rates are going to be higher than previously anticipated, was he wrong? To the Fed's credit, and, and we have a tendency to forget about this, Go back in time, I don't mean a century, but just 20, 30 years, and the Fed didn't talk to the public. They didn't talk to the markets. We would track what the Federal Reserve was doing based on uh, money supply measurements that would come out every Thursday and open market committee activities that you would hear through the grapevine. And so you kind of had to piece it together, and sometimes that led to misunderstandings that led to problems. It seems like the Fed is overcompensated, and there is something to be said about a little bit of mystery as to what happens next, so we don't get these wild swings in the stock and bond market as everybody sort of repositions themselves to whatever the latest speech was or the latest congressional testimony by the chairman. A a little bit of mystery wouldn't hurt. I realize people pay money for this, but what do you tell your investors, your your clients? All of this comes back to the Federal Reserve. I think it's time for them to sit on their hands for a couple of meetings and see what the results of their inputs into the economy actually are to see how it works. Remember, Fed policy acts with 
a lag. And there is a debate amongst economists how long of a lag it is. But clearly, we don't know the results of all of the recent very rapid increases other than what we've started to see in the banking sector. And I think it it really behooves the Fed to step back and just see the results of their handiwork before possibly making things worse. Barry Ritholtz is chairman of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Thanks so much for being with us, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been a significant week for China's rubber stamp parliament meeting in Beijing. The National People's Congress handed Xi Jinping a rare third term as president. It also helped him consolidate power in another big way. It appointed a new premier who was his close ally. We turn now to NPR's John Ruich in Beijing. John, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to do it. And please tell us about the new premier. His name is Li Qiang. He's a 63-year-old politician who hails from a coastal province just south of Shanghai called Zhejiang. Now, analysts trying to understand what he's all about, what he stands for, say that where he's from is an important clue because Zhejiang has been this engine of economic growth for China for decades, a hub of private enterprise and entrepreneurship. And Li Chang's career was built there. In fact, he didn't leave to work anywhere else until just before his 57th birthday. While he was in Zhejiang, he worked his way up through local governments. And then in the early 2000s, got a big break. He was appointed the Communist Party boss of the city of Wenzhou. And why is that so significant? Well, these were go-go years, right? The Chinese economy was supercharged. It was growing in double digits. And Wenzhou was right in the middle of it. It was a hotbed for private business. And it was lauded as a model for other parts of the country. So it was a springboard for Li Chang, who went on to become governor of the province and then most recently party boss in Shanghai. What about his relationship with Xi? Well, in a word, he owes his career to Xi Jinping. You know, two decades ago, Xi Jinping was sent to Zhejiang to run the entire province. He apparently liked what he saw in Li. He made him chief of staff uh, in 2004. And they worked very closely together until Xi left the province in 2007. They formed a strong bond back then. And Li is obviously someone who Xi trusts very deeply. To this day, Li became premier without having served a single day as vice premier, which is something that hasn't happened since Chairman Mao's days. And John, what are the implications in this appointment for the Chinese economy, which is reeling at the moment? This is a question that nobody seems to be able to answer yet. You know, Lee could be great. People who've met him say he's sharp. He understands markets. He absolutely gets the value of private businesses and entrepreneurs, which are going to be critical for China to you know, be a dynamic economy over the long run. In Zhejiang, he championed private businesses like the huge tech titan Alibaba. He did the same in Shanghai. Uh, you know, he was responsible for bringing in Tesla, which opened its first overseas factory there. Here's Victor Xi, an expert in elite Chinese politics at UC San Diego. Very likely his own belief system, value system is, generally speaking, pro-business. But, of course, he did not get to his current position because he is pro-business. He is believed to have gotten there because of his loyalty to Xi Jinping, which was on full display in Shanghai last spring when Omicron hit. Li tried to manage it with a light touch at first, but the cases kept rising. And by all accounts, Xi Jinping told him to get it under control. So he implemented a very harsh, unpopular two-month lockdown. So it sounds like the question being asked is, at the moment, which Li will we see? The one who is the loyal friend or pro-business? Yeah, that seems to be it. But those aren't really necessarily incompatible, those two things. 
the problem for Lee, though, is that he's going to have to strike a balance between policies that serve Xi's fixation on control and security with policies and reforms that'll stabilize the economy and drive it forward. And Pierre's John Ruich, thanks so much. You're welcome. Da Vinci, the famous Ukrainian war hero, was died, gave up his dream of going to art school to fight for his country, and he died defending the eastern city of Bakhmut earlier this week. He was 27. Thousands of Ukrainians turned out for his funeral in Kiev yesterday, and Bears Joanna Kakissis was there. Nine years ago, when Dimitro Kotsubailo was a fresh-faced teenager, he was in Kiev's Maidan Square, protesting against a Russian-backed president who compromised Ukraine's independence. On Friday, Kotsubailo returned in a coffin as a legendary soldier who devoted his life to defending Ukraine in the harshest of battles with Russia. Thousands of mourners waited in long lines to see the hero they called Da Vinci. They wept as they sang Ukraine's national anthem and held bouquets of roses and carnations. 25-year-old Karina Nikolaeva brought her five-year-old son. I want to show my child how everything starts and how it ends in Ukraine right now. I grew up forced to glorify old heroes from a foreign state. I want him to understand what it means to be a real patriot. Kotsubailo became Ukraine's youngest military commander at age 21. His brigade is called the Vinci's Wolves. Two years ago, President Volodymyr Zelensky awarded Kotsubailo the country's highest honor, the hero of Ukraine, making him one of the youngest to receive the distinction. When it came time to take Kotsubailo's coffin to its final resting place, those in the crowd fell to their knees as a sign of respect. 18-year-old Diana Kuzir sang along to the national anthem. She says the war is forcing so many young Ukrainians to forego their dreams in order to keep Ukraine intact. This war not only takes away our lives, but also our youth. We should be studying peacefully, but now we can't even think about the future, because we don't know what will happen. In an interview late last month, Kotsubailo also seemed stressed about the future. He warned that Russian President Vladimir Putin seemed ready for a very long war. Putin won't give up. He's ready to fight no matter how many years it will take. But the Ukrainians are ready too, he added. They're ready to fight to the death. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Kyiv. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. And coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear about Pennsylvania House Speaker Joanna McClinton, one of the black women breaking new ground in state capitals, a record setting six black women now lead state legislative chambers. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years on stage March 16th to 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. 
It's 38 degrees in Boston. Some rain today with temperatures in the upper 30s. Possibly a bit of snow early this evening, then mostly cloudy and lows overnight in the low 30s. A mostly sunny Sunday tomorrow's highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. A new system of heavy precipitation known as an atmospheric river is sweeping over parts of California with heavy rain, thunderstorms and strong winds, swelling rivers and creeks and flooding several major highways and small rural communities. Members of Congress today have been meeting with federal banking regulators a day after the FDIC took over Silicon Valley Bank, the largest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. The SpaceX Dragon capsule is returning to Earth at this hour, splashing down this evening four International Space Station travelers, including two American astronauts, are aboard. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. It has been four months since the Ethiopian government signed a peace deal with rebels from the country's northern Tigray region after two years of a brutal civil war. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Many children and families still suffer. And the region's economy is in ruins. Yonti Suhipto is the CEO and president of Save the Children. She's visited this region this week. Ms. Suhipto, thanks very much for being with us. No, pleasure. Thank you for having me. What did you see? We saw a lot of destruction. Uh, not in Mekela. The city is actually back up and running. But we did hear and see that schools are not yet open again. Hospitals are closed. Healthcare uh, posts are closed. And there's an enormous amount of destruction. I saw many windows smashed, buildings completely gutted, uh, hospitals and healthcare centers completely gutted, assets were taken, looted, computers are taken, refrigerators are taken, everything, school desks and chairs are gone. Uh, so there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to happen. Families separated from each other? Yes, yes. Save the Children is actually working in a, in a couple of communities now to uh, try to reunite some of these children with their families. We've identified 82 of these children. We've managed to reunite, I think, around about 20 of those children with their families over these past couple of uh, weeks. And we're hoping to get to all 82 of them uh, over the coming weeks. But clearly, we're concerned that there are more children yeah. out there that have lost their families, and we don't know exactly yet how many and where they are. Can can aid even reach people? Yes, I would say, well, all the areas in Tigray where Save the Children worked before the conflict started are now, we, we can reach all of the communities where we were. 
which is great. There are still areas in Tigray, uh, Western Tigray in particular, where I know that partners of ours, fellow agencies, humanitarian actors, haven't had access yet because there is still violence. Uh, but Save the Children is back up and running in with all of our activities. Both sides of the conflict, as I don't have to tell you, have been uh, accused of human rights abuses. And the UN says that Ethiopia's government has used starvation as uh, as a tactic. What kind of famine did you see or signs of this? We saw severe signs of food insecurity, malnutrition. We spoke to a couple of our staff at, at some of these health clinics. We spoke to local health authorities and their estimates. And again, you know, hard data, comprehensive data set is still not available. But they were quoting to us, you know, over 70% of pregnant or lactating women, women who are breastfeeding, are malnourished. So if the if the mothers and the pregnant women are malnourished, that means that our babies are hungry too. I saw kids present in those healthcare clinics with malnutrition uh, symptoms, absolutely. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of food insecurity out there. What can the world do to help now and over the long term? Well, the world can't avert its gaze from Ethiopia. And I know, of course, there are many, many distractions, many crises in the world that demand uh, attention. <laughs> That's the same for us that save the children. But Ethiopia is a country of 120 million people. There are a number of multiple crises going on at the same time. Yes, the, the peace building and the rehabilitation of uh, Tigray and northern Ethiopia, ongoing drought, worsening droughts actually in the south and still conflict uh, also in other areas. So. Over 20 million people are in need. Uh, Many millions of people are hungry, food insecure, close to famine. And then we have many children out of school. So kids in Tigray haven't been in school for the last two and a half years. So even that gap, not just in academic learning, but also in social learning, emotional learning, and the trauma that the, the past two and a half years have wreaked on those young minds, those are the things we have to start to address. And it takes everybody. I've got to ask you a difficult question, and I realize that you need to cooperate with local governments. Always. Wherever. Do you, tr- <laughs> do you trust them? Um, well, yes. I mean, you know, we trust actions, right? Um, we need to see teachers and doctors and nurses in Tigray getting paid again, because they haven't been paid for the last two and a half years, and if they're not paid, and if schools are not um, repaired, um, then... It is very hard for the people of Tigray to see that peace div- dividend really come through. Uh, so those actions we'd like to see. We I met with uh, the Minister of Health here, a number of the local uh, the local authorities in Tigray, and again there they all express support um, for Save the Children, which is fantastic. And we've had support from the government here for many many years. Save the Children has been here since the late 60s, um, and we've always managed. Uh, to to do great work under sometimes really difficult circumstances, including conflict. Jan Tiso-Hipto is the CEO and president of Save the Children. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Black women are making history in state governments across the country. A record-setting six black women now lead legislative chambers in their states. Reporter Laura Bensoff brings us the story of how one Pennsylvania politician's rise and how it fits into a national trend. Last week, State Representative Joanna McClinton became the most powerful person in the Pennsylvania House, the majority speaker. After accepting the speaker's gavel, she jokingly tapped the podium. Can I try it out? (laughs) 
Then she got serious when talking about the power that it symbolizes. And we, in this moment in time right now, have to pinch ourselves because it was almost 250 years before a woman could stand at this desk, not just to give a prayer, but to get the gavel. 40-year-old McClinton has spent less than a decade in elected office. A native of Southwest Philadelphia, she's now the first woman and second African-American to ever hold this post. In an interview, McClinton says she hesitated when people first approached her about running. You know, I'm just generally a risk-averse person. <laughs> so the idea that I'd put myself out there and have to raise money, it just seemed intimidating and too much. She says when she started to talk about all of her experience with supporters, she saw how it did add up to being a good candidate. Hearing me talk about the things I'd done as a public defender, the things I'd done in my personal life as a youth minister at my church, that I finally realized, like, I too could take up this space. McClinton is now one of a half dozen Black women presiding over legislative chambers in the U.S. While a small number, it's still the most there has ever been, says Debbie Walsh with the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. So when someone like a Joanna McClinton becomes the Speaker of the Pennsylvania House, we really notice. In Pennsylvania, it's also notable because now both the Senate and the House are led by women. And those leadership numbers have grown alongside another trend. For years, the number of women seeking state legislative office at all had stayed pretty flat. But in 2018, the number of women running to be in these chambers spiked. Walsh says that year, a new wave of female candidates ran following former President Donald Trump's election. We saw record numbers of women running for those seats. And we saw record numbers of women coming in. And those numbers have kept climbing in subsequent cycles. Democrats currently elect more women, but the GOP has been increasing its number of female candidates faster. Donna Bullock, chairwoman of the Pennsylvania Legislative Black Caucus, says she's seen that change firsthand since she and McClinton took office in 2015. When we got elected, Pennsylvania ranked second to last in the case of electing women to office. And here we are, seven years later, not only have we moved up from that ranking, we've also elected the first woman to the speakership. McClinton's rise was no accident. She campaigned to flip the state house, which Republicans had controlled for more than a decade. Democrats now hold a slim two-vote majority. Bullock says McClinton gained her colleagues' trust even before that. Some of the challenging times while we were in the minority, she held us together. Her new work as speaker is just beginning. McClinton says she hopes to focus on issues like raising the minimum wage and school funding. And she'll be doing it with the awareness that her very presence could inspire others. A constituent of mine is a public school teacher, and he sent me a photograph of his students watching the swearing in on Tuesday. So I hope, you know, a young lady in that circle of students might say, what is she doing and how can I do something like that? If she does, that student won't have to be the first. For NPR News, I'm Laura Benshoff in Philadelphia. I wait all week to say... And now it's time for sports. Michaela Schifrin skis into history. The World Baseball Classic highlights unlikely stars and college basketball bids farewell to a legendary coach. NPR's Tom Goldman joins us. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Michaela Schifrin. 
Mm. All-time record today. Tell us the latest. Wow. Uh, big day in alpine ski racing, Scott. Schifrin did it. She won the 87th World Cup race of her career, which means she's now the all-time record holder. She tied Swedish legend Ingemar Stenmark yesterday with a giant slalom win. Today she moved past him with a win in her best discipline, the slalom. She turns 28 next week, and if she stays healthy and keeps racing, she could get to at least 100 wow. World Cup wins. She's an amazing athlete a really engaging person, really fast on skis. A lot of people happy for her today. Yeah. Let me ask about the World Baseball Classic. Going on now, 20 nations competing. Um, games have already begun uh, in Japan and Taiwan. What teams are you looking at? Well, watch out for Japan. Today, the Japanese Boy, want... were they were they great? But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> they want the Czech Republic 10 to 2. Yeah. That means Japan scored 31 total runs in its three wins so far. It's a really talented team that includes the amazing Shohei Otani, the American League MVP in 2021. And he says he's not even the best on this team. Um, he's I'm looking modest. For... He's a great player, and he's modest. Go ahead. He, amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to the first game today for a couple of the other favorites. The Dominican Republic is stocked with MLB stars in their primes like Juan Soto and Manny Machado. The U.S. is the defending World Baseball Classic champion and led by superstar Mike Trout. Now, his presence is significant. Um, there's been a little bit of arrogance by some U.S. players about this event. They said it wasn't really significant and they didn't want to risk injury by playing in it. But Trout watched the U.S. win in 2017. He got fired up to play for his country. And when he signed up, a flood of other stars like... Mookie Betts, Pete Alonso, yeah. they all followed him. Um, I should mention, Scott, part of the fun are the non-contenders, though, where baseball still is a bit of an oddity, like the Czechs, with their largely amateur roster, including a firefighter, a high school teacher. The manager is a neurologist, um, although they did win. They beat China. I, as you know, I kind of root for the Netherlands. Yes. And I'm not going to make any jokes about how hard it is to run in wooden shoes. <laughs> Uh, but they, they have a team with several major league stars, including yeah, uh, Xander it, Bogarts. Yes, there are a lot of fun teams to watch here. MLB wants, uh, wants a world audience, right? Yeah, you know, this is baseball's World Cup. Since there's no baseball in next summer's Olympics, this is sports' big, biggest international competition. U.S. baseball fans don't put it on the same level as, you know, the MLB postseason and the World Series. Much of the world loves it, and Major League Baseball is trying to tap into what it sees as a hugely lucrative global market, and, and it thinks the WBC helps that effort in a big way. Before March Madness begins in earnest, um, goodbye to a great coach this week, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jim Beheim, after 47 years coaching at Syracuse, he wraps up a career yeah. having the second most wins of Division I men's coaches after Mike Krzyzewski. Beheim took the Orange to five Final Fours. They won the national championship in 2003. And we must mention, Scott, that he left a trail of wounded reporters at his often oh, yes. sour press conferences. Longtime college basketball writer John Feinstein once wrote about Beheim. If a hemorrhoid could talk, it would sound like Jim Beheim. But those who covered ooh, Beheim ooh. and knew him, like Feinstein, said there was a lot more to the man than his sourpuss demeanor, a lot that basketball fans, especially in Syracuse, are honoring this week. 
Yes. That's quite, I didn't know, John wrote that? Oh. <laughs> well. But apparently Beheim told him, you know, John, you're probably right. Oh, well, that's all right. A classy guy. NPR's Tom Goldman, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. And I hope you're still listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. People serving life sentences in prison often have a lot of sway over the culture there. And at one Tennessee prison, about an hour southwest of Nashville, men with life sentences are trying to use that influence for good. Remember station WPLN, Paige Flager reports, they want to help first-timers navigate life behind bars, and once they're out, how to stay out. A group of young men are gathered in a circle around David Richardson. We're going to look at some, I'm assuming, bad labels. He wears round, gold-rimmed glasses and has quiet command over the group. He asks them each to pick up a scrap of paper and read the words written on them. I got feeling and you would never be anything in life. I got a jailbird, lost cause. I said you nothing. And another... I won't live to see 21. These labels are the ways these incarcerated men feel society sees them. But 26-year-old Tyron Cherry says those labels don't need to dictate the ways he lives his life. We're labeled felons, but look what we're doing. We're actually trying to change and all that. It doesn't really, you know, it's just, it's just what you make them. That's how you And Cherry is trying to make the most of it. He's up for parole next year, whereas Richardson is serving a life sentence. Their conversation is part of a new mentorship program inside the Turney Center Industrial Complex that pairs lifers like Richardson with first-timers like Cherry. The older guys have been in prison so long, there's pitfalls that they can help them to not fall in. Prison counselor Gildor Simplice helped connect these two groups, who normally wouldn't have much contact with each other. Usually a lot of them come very young, and they're like, you know, if I had a big brother... Prison life would have been a little easier for me. And so we started working on how to start one. And here we are. The program is the first of its kind in the state. And David Richardson knew he wanted to be part of it. He was just 20 when he came to prison. And there was a group of older guys who helped him avoid joining gangs or getting into more trouble. Now, he wants to pay it forward. They got the word at their fingertips, and I just want to help them see that. And that means being vulnerable with the younger guys about how he ended up with a life sentence for murder. Like, I didn't have any prospects of going to college, of uh, doing anything with my life. I I knew that this is where I was coming. And it's so unfortunate that I think a lot of the young guys that we deal with and a lot of them that weren't here today, you know, have their same expectation. He says it's hard to see himself as someone to look up to. He's made mistakes, and he's only 32 years old. But his openness about his experiences is why younger guys like Tyron Cherry admire him so much. Because I didn't have a father growing up, so he's someone I can look up to. Cherry says this group and having a role model like Richardson is kind of like therapy to him. This type of mentorship and education has proven to make a big difference with his age group. Like I said, I don't want to be labeled another statistic who just comes back to jail and keeps coming back to jail because next time it might be for a life sentence, you know. The program is too new to know what kind of long-term effect it will have. 
But Cherry says it set him on a new path, and that path does not lead back to prison. For NPR News, I'm Paige Flager at the Turney Center Industrial Complex. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The MBTA still has speed restrictions in place on the Green Line and on the Mattapan Trolley. And the slowdowns continue on parts of the red, orange, and blue lines. The T says they will stay in effect until final track inspections are completed. On Thursday, the T ordered trains on all the subway lines to reduce speed after managers could not prove to state regulators that necessary work had been completed. In New Hampshire, lawmakers facing charges in connection with allegations that he aggressively confronted a snowplow driver. Republican State Rep. Jeffrey Greeson of Wentworth was arrested yesterday on charges of disorderly conduct, criminal threatening, and simple assault. The plow driver told police that Greeson stood in the road blocking him, and a video recorded by the plow driver shows Greeson yelling at him for blocking his driveway with snow. In the forecast for the Boston area, some rain late this afternoon. That rain could mix with a bit of snow. Temperatures today in the upper 30s. Clouds around tonight and lows in the low 30s. Tomorrow, sunshine highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters. Professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Personalized to your needs. SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Mass Art. Celebrating 150 years with a mass art auction April 1st, featuring 370 works of art. To buy tickets, visit massartauction.org. This year, an Oscar first. Some 20% of acting nominations at the Academy Awards went to Asian performers. The universe is so much bigger than you realize. We'll talk about this watershed year for Asian actors and a look at the history-making nominees ahead of the Oscars. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The Archdiocese of the Baltimore Catholic Church has been the subject of an investigation for sexual abuse. After a four-year grand jury investigation, a judge will soon release details of what children and young adults endured over the past 80 years. Member Station WYPR Scott Massioni has our report, and please note there are details of sexual violence at moments over the next three and a half minutes, and it may be unsuitable for some listeners. Jean Hargadon-Wainer was just a teenager when Father Joseph Maskell allegedly abused her at a Baltimore high school in the 1960s. He would put a gun to my temple. He prostituted me. He raped me. 
Hargadon Wainer is just one of the 600 alleged victims a Maryland Attorney General's report found during an investigation into the Archdiocese of Baltimore over the past 80 years. The report implicates 158 priests. Maskell was one of those priests, and Hargadon Wainer says at one point during her alleged repeated abuses, he emptied the bullets from a gun and held it to her head. I can still hear the click of the trigger. And he said, if your father ever finds out you've been whoring around, he'll do this, but he'll keep bullets in it. After a four-year investigation, a judge has ordered that a redacted version of a 456-page report on the archdiocese can be released to the public. Brian Frosch, the former Maryland attorney general who oversaw the grand jury investigation, says some people who have been allegedly abused lived with fear, guilt, and anxiety. What we heard from survivors was that the abuse changed their lives. It marked them for life. Often it takes years for people to come to terms with their abuse. A study by the medical journal BMC Public Health says the average age of a victim reporting sexual abuse is 52. You have to look back to the culture in the 1960s and 70s, which really didn't encourage these folks to come forward. In fact, many of them, when they did come forward, uh, were smacked back down. The archdiocese declined to be interviewed for this story, but Baltimore Archbishop William Lurie acknowledged its role in the sexual abuse of children in a YouTube video. I extend once again my deepest apologies for the abuse suffered upon them by clergy and others whose sinful and criminal acts so badly damaged them. Maryland's grand jury probe is one of a handful of recent state investigations into the Catholic Church. It, it is a growing body of evidence for a national scourge. David Lorenz, the Maryland director for the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, says the reports are a way for victims to grieve and to hold the church accountable. This Catholic Church has a habit of underreporting the number of priests and are not changing the way they do their work. Many states, including Maryland, are using the investigations to rethink laws on how long after abuse victims can file lawsuits against their abusers or the organizations harboring them. However, Jennifer Wortham, chair of the Global Collaborative, a network of child advocacy organizations, says civil lawsuit limitations are only one part of the puzzle. The decentralized nature of the nearly 200 dioceses and archdioceses in the United States makes the reporting and prosecution of child sex abuse complicated. We need significant uh, reform and we could have uniform federal laws to protect children everywhere because the, this applies to the Catholic Church, also applies to other not-for-profit organizations. Despite the outcome of the legislation, Jean hardigan Wainer, who was abused by her priest in Baltimore, says the Maryland report will bring a sense of healing. It's going to validate survivors to their families and to those loved ones that didn't necessarily know how to believe such a horrible thing. Survivors of the abuse are now bracing for when the judge will finally release the report, likely in the coming days or weeks. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. Three years after police in Louisville shot and killed Breonna Taylor, the Department of Justice has released troubling findings of its investigation into the city's police department. A clear and unmistakable evidence of a pattern or practice of conduct that violates our Constitution and our federal law. Later today on All Things Considered, hear from a DOJ attorney involved in the investigation. You can listen live on this public radio station on its website or at npr.org.
The Oscars are tomorrow. Awards will be given out for acting, directing, cinematography, film editing, but none for stunts, despite the fact that blockbusters, including Top Gun Maverick and Black Panther Wakanda Forever, have some dazzling and death-defying stunts in them. Bill Iberi is a film critic at New York Magazine and a champion of the stunts industry. He joins us now from New York. Mr. Iberi, thanks so much for being with us. It's good to be here. You made the case for a, uh, a stunt category Oscar back in 2019. Why? It was really built out of a frustration at seeing how much stunt professionals had lobbied for years to try and get the Academy to recognize stunts. This is a, a campaign is maybe not the right word, but it's been going on for you know, more than three decades. The stunt professional who has really spearheaded this over the years is a man by the name of Jack Gill. He's a veteran stunt coordinator. And I, I wanted to highlight that not just because, you know, I, I feel it's the right thing to do, but I actually think in these days when the Oscars are always worrying about viewership and things like that. I actually think a stunts category would really create great television. Mm -hmm. Why haven't the Oscars gone ahead and created something for stunt performers? When I talked to Jack Gill about it, he mentioned a couple of different things. One of the things is, and it's an obvious one, is that the Academy is generally not in favor of adding more categories to a show that they've always worried is already going on too long. Another thing that Jack said that he had heard, I think mostly anecdotally from other people in the Academy, was that there was a worry that if they introduced the best stunt Oscar, that a lot of stunt people would start getting injured in an effort to create more and more elaborate stunts to win awards and things like that. There are film associations that do give out stunt awards, aren't there? Yes, there are. The SAG Awards actually have a stunt ensemble award that they've given out for years. Just a, several years ago, the um, Canada's equivalent of the Oscars, the Canadian Academy, introduced a, a stunt award. And of course, at, at Vulture, we just inaugurated our own Best Stunt Awards uh, just this past week. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some of the awards that uh, that Vulture gave out. Best Stunt in an Action Film. The final dogfight in Top Gun Maverick. Tell me what you see smoke in the air. Smoke in the air, smoke in the air. Hang on. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's a you know, it's the big climactic dogfight in that film because so much of the film is about the importance of actual pilots piloting these planes as opposed to drones and things like that. This sequence where Tom Cruise and Miles Teller are in this old, beat-up F-14 fighting against a next-generation fighter from, you know, an unnamed enemy country. The whole sequence kind of symbolizes the movie. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you about uh, another category, Best Vehicular Stunt. Your winner, the Batmobile Penguin chasing the Batman. What you're seeing on screen isn't necessarily always all that clear and, and shot in full light and things like that. And, and that sequence in the Batman is shot in the rain. It's shot from a variety of angles where you just see angles of the Batmobile. I got you! Take that, you friggin' psycho! I got you! <laughs> it's a beautiful scene, and it's a great example of how, really, in the end, it's not just about the stunt, it's about how it's used and how it's shot and how it's edited and how it works within the context of a scene. 
you gave an overall award to a person. The name is not familiar to a lot of us, but you hope that more people will get to know about his contribution. Scott Atkins, what can you tell us about him? Scott Atkins is a martial artist and actor who's been working for a long time. Um, you know, he's often seen as a villain in bigger movies. You, you know, he's a, he's in one of the Expendables movies as, as one of the bad guys. But he's also an actor who has been the lead in a number of low-budget action films that many of them have gone straight to video. A lot of them haven't had big theatrical releases. But in the action community and, and in the film community, those movies have a following, and he has a following because he's he's capable of just doing incredible things on screen. Some people call him the human special effect. The film that he was singled out for in our stunt awards was a film called Accident Man, Hitman's Holiday. It's just filled with incredible fight sequences that are really designed to highlight the skill of the individuals doing the fighting. Bill Gaberry is film critic at New York Magazine and a voice for stunt artists. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Love, good karma, some old school funk are ingredients for a happy life, says Caliuchis. The Colombian performer gained prominence in the U.S. after releasing a mixtape in 2012. Her Latin-infused take on R&B is censoring millions of fans, top spots on global music charts, and a Grammy. Caliucci's just released her third album, Red Moon and Venus, and she joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. A red moon, sometimes called a blood moon. Isn't that uh, sometimes considered a bad omen? Not in my book. I think it's sexy. The music is very feminine. It's about love. So Venus felt like obvious for me. And then red moon, it just felt like the energy. Like I felt like red encapsulated the, the entire body of work. And the moon, I'm guided by the moon. So red moon, it just felt like the right thing. And I, I see what you're talking about, about, you know, the end of the world, la la la, with the red moon. I, that just made me want to do red moon even more. Because I was like, I'm about to end the world with this <laughs> There's a lot of romance on this album, isn't there? Very romantic album. Erotic, some might say. That that was definitely what I wanted to get with the album. I wanted to put more love into the world. And, yeah. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. How do you think of some of the influences that are that are in this album? Funk, soul? Definitely soul. I would say a lot of soul is in the album. And I look at soul as like a underlying term for my music. I sing and I write from my soul. And so I just look at all my music as soul music because of that. I don't really think too much about genres when I'm creating. It's more so what I wanted to give. I wanted it to feel timeless. I wanted it to feel romantic. Go on and call. Something very important for me was showing all the different dimensions of love. So like, you know, the downs and the ups and the times where you're at peace, the times where you're in pieces, all of it. That's a wonderful phrase. The times you're at peace, the times you're in pieces. Thank you. I don't know. Just came up with it off the top. <laughs>
Let's listen to a little of Moral Conscience. Can I get you to talk about your childhood? Uh-oh. <laughs> I was waiting for that. So you said you didn't have love in your childhood. Yeah, no. True story. I gather you grew up between Columbia and, and Virginia in an immigrant family. Would you mind talking about it? I would just say that growing up, I never really felt like the love and the support that I feel like kids should have. I think that that follows you your whole life. Like, having mommy and daddy issues is hard. So there you were. There I was, with a dream. May I ask, your mother or father didn't see that in you, or? I don't think anybody saw it in me. Not just them. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just a dream, no plans. No plan, but a dream she did have. I hope you know when karma comes around, knocking down on your You made your first mixtape in your car in 2012 after you'd been turned out of your house? Yeah. When I first started making music, I just had, you know, my laptop, a USB mic, a MIDI keyboard. That was something that I loved to do. I always loved to make music. I was writing poetry since I was little. Mm -hmm. I was in jazz band. I played piano. I played saxophone. I always had um, a strong desire to just always be creating no matter like where I was or what situation I was in my life I always created is um a lot of your music at the moment about um, what amounts to the importance of, of knowing yourself and being comfortable with yourself. I would say, yeah, I would say self-love is definitely a dimension of love that was very um, important to the making of this album. You seem to be in a happy spot now. Yeah, I am happy. I would say I'm happy. Can we be happy now? I want to be happy now. Can we be happy now? Callie Uchi's her new album is called Red Moon and Venus. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm going to look at the Red Moon a little differently now because of you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, 
and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. At 11, listen for Freakonomics. The WBUR app gives you an easy way to follow the news. One tap to listen live, another tap to pause and rewind. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And the Lyric Stage with The Great Leap, a friendship game of basketball midst turmoil at Tiananmen Square turns into a different game. Through March 19th, LyricStage.com. I'm Nagin Farsad filling in for Peter Sagal. Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala which she would choose, Taylor Swift tickets or Beyonce tickets. I would want both tickets. I have a Nobel Peace Prize and I get <laughs> Yeah, incredible answer. We'll hear your demands on this week's news quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.